Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Roll up your sleeve as we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition, we'll feature growing fat and shrinking brains. But first up, here's the news. Undergraduate students at Rowan University in New Jersey have developed a process for making photovoltaic solar cells from glass, white paint, iodine and fruit. Under the guidance of Dr. Darius Kuchiauskas, the team of students developed the system on their own. They first blend the fruit, they separate out the heavy particles with a filter and centrifuge until they are left with just a liquid. They freeze dry the liquid and add an acid solution to separate the sugar to produce a brightly coloured pure dye. The dye is bonded with a conductive glass panel coated with titanium oxide in the form of white paint. Finally, they add iodine and potassium iodide electrolyte for dye regeneration. Dye regeneration is how the fruit dye recovers electrons after passing them to the glass electrode when it's generating power. Without the regeneration, the dye would break down after one exposure to the sun. When light hits the fruit dye on the glass, it excites the electrons, which mobilizes or frees them. The electrons travel to a conductive glass electrode. That, in turn, produces electricity. The iodine and potassium iodide keep the dye from decomposing. The glass of fruit juice solar panel is less efficient than a traditional silicon solar cell, but enormously cheaper and tastier. A facelift pill that makes 80-year-olds look 20. It may be a long time before humans can extend their lifespans to hundreds of years, but the technology to make humans look 60 years younger than their actual age is right around the corner. A group of scientists at the University of Michigan have done an exhaustive study of what gives people the appearance of age, wrinkled, saggy or broken skin, and figured out a quick fix that may keep skin looking taut and young even though the person inside it has grown very old. The key lies with collagen, a spongy layer of tissue beneath the skin that is gradually dissolved as people grow older. Scientists say that ageing bodies release an enzyme called collagenase that literally eats away at collagen, which in turn makes the skin weak and thin. It sags and becomes easier to bruise or tear. If collagenase could be removed from the body, or the collagen itself rejuvenated, people's skin would stay firm and healthy. There are several possible substances already available that could promote collagen regrowth. The UM researchers base their conclusions on past studies in which they have explored why certain anti-aging treatments are effective. A 2007 study looked at Ristolane, marketed as a dermal filler, and found that injections of the product caused fibroblasts to stretch, promoting new collagen, and also limited the breakdown of collagen. In another 2007 study, the UM team tested lotions containing retinol, a form of vitamin A, found in many skincare products, and they found it significantly reduced wrinkles and skin roughness in elderly skin by promoting new collagen. 
Other UM studies have shown why some laser treatments work and some less powerful ones do not. Carbon dioxide laser resurfacing is effective because it removes the aging dermis. In the three-week regrowth process, new young collagen is produced. Voorhees and his colleagues say they provide needed independent research on the effectiveness of available and future treatments to counteract skin aging. They have no ties to the manufacturers of products they study. Sounds like the early 21st century may not be the first time in human history when you might have no idea how old the person is that you're talking to. With collagen replacement, you might think that you're dating a 25-year-old until she suddenly drops dead of old age. bit of news was provided for us by Ian Wolfe. And now to a recreational drug that might be shrinking our brains, but also preventing anxiety. Cannabis is the most popular illicit drug in Australia. In 2004, about 34% of the Australian public had tried cannabis at least once in their lifetime. This included nearly 20% of 12 to 17 year olds. Of this population, nearly one in four people had had cannabis within the last 12 months of the study. The active constituent of cannabis is a compound called Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC for short. This chemical acts at special receptors on the nerves in our brain and in our peripheral nervous system. These receptors are activated when THC binds to them, and this then changes the way the nerves conduct their signals. For the majority of people, the most noticeable effects of the changes are to give us feelings of relaxation and well-being. Cannabis can also reduce our perception of pain and increase our appetite through a sudden attack of the munchies. But there is a downside to this drug, or it would be legal, right? Cannabis can impair short-term memory and inhibit our ability to perform simple learning tasks. More dangerous, potentially, is that it can also impair motor coordination, which when you're driving might mean you have more chance of being in an accident. There is evidence that long-term regular use of cannabis is associated with schizophrenia and other psychological disorders, such as depression, but there is still a bit of a debate over that relationship. Does pot smoking cause these disorders, or do the disorders cause the pot smoking? In Australia, cannabis is not approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration for medical use. It has been used in trials in the UK for the treatment of multiple sclerosis and is used in animal and clinical research. Our bodies do make their own version of THC, called anandamide, which acts at the same receptors in the brain and peripheral nerves but its effects are very short-lived and much less potent than THC. Scientists are researching the effects of THC and anandamide to see if they can manipulate the nerve pathways involved to treat medical conditions like chronic pain and anxiety. For one area of the brain, it appears that a little can go a long way, but too much might not be a good thing. This area of the brain is called the amygdala. It is part of the limbic system a set of structures deep in the core of our brain which give us the ability to form survival, social 
and sexual behaviours, to learn and to form emotions. The amygdala is specifically responsible for our sense of fear. It is active when we are put in fearful situations and when we see or hear fear expressed by other people, like in a scary horror film. Psychological research has shown that people with damage to their amygdala are unable to show fear in certain situations, like if they are attacked by another human being, or to recognise fear or anger in other people. And this is where cannabis comes into the picture. A team of Australian scientists led by Dr Murat Yousel of Origin Research Centre and the University of Melbourne have found that men who are heavy cannabis users have smaller brains than men who aren't heavy users. The specific area of the brain that's smaller in these individuals is the amygdala and also the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain involved in forming memories. The study looked at 15 men who had been smoking at least five joints a day for over 10 years. The average age of these men was about 40, and none had a history of mental disorders or multiple drug use. Their brains were examined by high-resolution structural MRI in a hospital research facility. On average, the size of the amygdala was reduced by 7.1%, and the hippocampus by 12% on both sides of the brain. It doesn't sound like much, does it? But even a small change in the brain might have a big effect. The heavy cannabis users scored less well than the control group in a verbal learning task, which was trying to recall a list of 15 words. They were also more likely to exhibit mild signs of psychological disorders. However, these last results didn't seem to correlate with the shrinking areas of the brain. This type of study is called a cross-sectional study, which is good at finding a link between cannabis and smaller brains, but doesn't necessarily indicate a cause-and-effect relationship. So does cannabis really shrink your amygdala? Or do people with small amygdalas like smoking cannabis? Some other research on the amygdala has indicated a potentially positive role for cannabis. This is for people who suffer from anxiety. About one in five Australians suffer from some form of psychological disorder at least once in their lifetime. Some of the most common are anxiety disorders, with around 10% of Australians suffering from anxiety disorders at least once in their lifetime. Dr. Kailuan Fan of the Department of Psychiatry, the University of Michigan, the US, and colleagues from the University of Chicago looked at the brain after administration of THC. Their study was a randomised double-blind study, which involved 16 recreational cannabis users who were given either THC or placebo in a pill form. A functional MRI was used to look at the activity in the amygdala before and after the subjects took their pills, when the subjects were shown pictures of threatening faces. They found that THC significantly reduced the amygdala's reaction to these social signals that indicated threatening behaviour but they didn't affect other areas of the brain involved in processing and reacting to threatening behaviour, such as the primary visual cortex and the motor cortex. The evidence suggests that THC targets the amygdala reasonably specifically, and theoretically, by targeting the amygdala, you would be able to treat conditions where the amygdala might be overactive, like anxiety and social phobias, without compromising other areas of the brain.
So is this enough evidence for psychiatrists to prescribe joints for phobias? Well, not just yet. In a parallel study, Dr. Fan is also examining another drug, sertraline, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI for short. Sertraline is already approved by the US Food and Drug Administration for social and other anxiety disorders, but Fan wants to see how genetic variations within the population impacts on the effectiveness of sertraline. The THE study might lead to a possible alternative treatment for anxiety. Both studies are geared towards the development of individualized or personalized treatments for these type of disorders, an example of the field of pharmacogenomics, where your best treatment for a particular disease is chosen based on your genes. So where does this leave THC? Is it both a long-term brain shrinker and a short-term anxiety reliever? Are small brains the price of a relaxed, fear-free existence? It's probably an oversimplification, but let's just wait and see where new research takes us. The research on cannabis and smaller amygdalas and hippocampi was published in the Archives of General Psychiatry, Volume 65. The Cannabis and Anxiety Study was published in the Journal of Neuroscience, Volume 28. For more information on cannabis in Australia, visit www.aihw.gov.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now for some more science madness from Tilly Berlin and Jackie Hayes. Looking at epigenetics. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Yes, dear listener, it is time for your dose of sciencey goodness. Or sciencey badness. Who knows? Um, Jackie Hayes is here joining us in the studio to wow you, excite you and give you something intelligent to say at a dinner party. Welcome, Jackie. Good morning, Tilly. Good morning. Um, what treasure trove of sciencey goodness have you got for us this morning? Um, it's just a single word, Tilly, mm. but it has a lot of implications. Have you heard of epigenetics? I've heard of it, but only when you said we were talking about it. <laughs> well, epigenetics is um, basically 
everything that you inherit that isn't part of your DNA code. Hang on, how can you inherit things that aren't part of your DNA code? Okay, so basically, um, up until only mm, last decade or so, everyone thought that everything you inherited was there in your DNA code, a whole bunch of numbers, whatever. There you go. Proteins make you up. Woohoo! Woo! Now they realize that all of the stuff that attaches to your DNA can actually modify how the DNA is turned into proteins. So if you've got like, okay, so imagine like this long molecule of DNA, you can have a huge protein stuck to it so that you can't actually even get that gene to work. Oh, right. Mm, But if you have a whole lot of some, I don't know, chemical running through your bloodstream, that can go into your cells and lift that protein so that gene can be made. All right, fancy pants. Nice. Yeah, so these things attached to DNA stop them being made and they can also be lifted by chemicals. But if you, um, if you, I don't know, if you're having a baby or something and you're exposed to a whole bunch of these um, chemicals, then it can actually change what genes are transcribed in your child. Ooh. Ooh. Have you got some examples? Well, I don't have any uh, solid examples for you, okay, but, um, but I was told by someone who studies this that folate mm. and cystic fibrosis is an example of that. So you basically just have to get to a certain saturation of this chemical before it all comes off and the gene starts being transcribed. Wow. It all sounds a little bit Lamarckian. Did you study did you study biology in high school or anything? Yes. Lamarckian yes, I did. versus Darwinian? Yes, indeed. Lamarckian's that guy that said that um, for example, in giraffes um, the reason they've got long necks is because one giraffe was really, really reaching out and then it stretched its muscles and then its its son inherited the stretched, stretched muscles. muscles. Yeah. Yeah. So Or daughter, racist. <laughs> <laughs> Ageist. Um yeah, so, so I don't know, it sounds a bit like, mm, you know, if you're exposed to all this stuff as an adult and then you go and have a child, that your child can inherit it. And um, actually, a recent study from Washington State University Ooh, nice. mm, was um, that they exposed rats to this environmental toxin to see what effect it had. And apparently, the effect of it lasted four generations. So it took four generations for the offspring to recover and not have any of those. Sweet Jesus. Yeah. That's not very good. What does that say about what we're passing on to our children if you happen to live in a heavily environmentally polluted area? I know mm. they were looking at rats and we're humans, but, you know, we're all animals and a lot of these things and we translate. Share, we share a lot of the same DNA. Damn skippy we do. Mm. Wow. So there you go. So it's not only DNA that uh, you're passing on. It's also other things that it's you've inc- accumulated during your life. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Especially for children, you know, around our age. I mean, our parents were hanging around in the 60s. (laughs) Imagine what they bioaccumulated. Yeah, I've seen photos of my dad when he was was wearing culottes. It wasn't a happy era for anyone. (laughs) My mum once made a dress for me out of the bottom of her flares. Oh. How cute cute would that be? A small child with a... A decorated bottom of flare with little straps. Hilarious. Oh, the 60s and bioaccumulation and epigenetics. See, if people haven't got enough out of this to, you know, impress people at a dinner party, then it's your own fault. 
<laughs> thank you very much for coming in and sharing some scientific facts with us, Jackie Hayes. No worries. Thank you for having me, Tilly. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Thanks, Tilly and Jackie. I'll keep my eye out for those flares. Well, it's official. Obesity in children isn't as bad as we thought. Or is it? Jenny O'Dea, Associate Professor of Child Health Research at the University of Sydney, indicated that fears over childhood obesity had been exaggerated. Australia's overall childhood obesity rate has risen only slightly, from 6% in 2000 to 6.8% in 2006, a rise which researchers explain is not statistically significant. But the operative word here is overall. The goal of this revelation was not to halt the Australian government's multi-million dollar commitment to funding prevention programs for obesity. Instead, the money should be better targeted to higher risk groups. These groups include low-income families. The latest research indicates that obesity in boys from low-income families rose from 5.4% in 2000 to 9.3% in 2006. That's almost double. For girls from low-income families, it's a similar story with a rise in obesity from 3.9% in 2000 to 6.8% in 2006. The primary cause of obesity seems to be an energy imbalance. We take in more energy than we burn off. There are also some other risk factors in our genes and early development that can predispose us to becoming obese. But the focus of obesity prevention centres around education and lifestyle changes. It's our sedentary lifestyle and junk food fever that is taking the heat. We drive more than we used to. Our jobs involve long hours sitting in front of a computer. We also have an abundance of food and tend to eat more than we need to. For children especially, it's computer games, junk food and a reduced participation in sport that are blamed for the current levels of obesity. So why might these be more problematic in poorer families? A study conducted by Dr. Lisa Gibson from the Division of Population Sciences, the Centre for Child Health Research in the University of Western Australia, investigated socioeconomic status, along with family functioning, structural and maternal weight, in Western Australian population of obese children. The investigators looked at a cross-section of children from another study, called the Childhood Growth and Development Study, which had monitored the weight of children twice a year for at least three years. They found links between childhood obesity and maternal obesity, single-parent families, increasing social disadvantage, and fewer years of maternal education. The researchers concluded that the combination of dysfunctional families with lower income and lower education put children at greater risk of becoming obese, particularly when there is less access to healthier foods, such as fruits and vegetables, and less access to facilities for exercise. A literature review authored by Leanne Birch and Alison Ventura of the Department of Nutritional Sciences and the Centre for Childhood Obesity Research, the Pennsylvania State University in the US, sheds more light on childhood obesity and poverty. The study found that if healthy food was available to families which generally had less food, the diets of the children would become healthier. There was also less obesity in children coming from families which generally had less food if more food was made available to them. Confused? Well, better access to food is associated with a healthier diet because there's more variety and choice. The problems of lower income and obesity have also been highlighted by Professor Gary Jennings, 
President of the Association of Australian Medical Research Institutes and Director of Melbourne's Baker Heart Institute, in an article featured in the Australian newspaper. Professor Jennings explains that poorer people have less education on what a healthy diet involves. But it might not be just about education. The notion that fresh, less fatty foods are expensive might be what drives people to eating takeaway or fast foods, according to some nutritionists. Professor Jennings highlighted that in tough economic circumstances, people might instinctively choose fatty foods with refined carbohydrates, salt and sugar, because they had the most amount of calories in them for the cheapest price. And what about families working long hours and struggling to get by? Wouldn't they choose the takeaway or fast food option because they have less time to cook for themselves and their kids, or perhaps less knowledge of how to cook? Earlier this year, the Australian Bureau of Statistics released data that indicated longer working hours were associated with an increase in obesity. The longer people worked, the less likely they were to eat adequate amounts of fruit and vegetables, and also the less likely they were to exercise. But this applied to all Australians, not just the lower income earners. How about exercise in lower income children? There is an assumption that children from lower-income families have less access to structured physical education in the schools they go to. Private schools might provide better access to activities outside of the normal curriculum, such as sports facilities, than their public school competitors. Increasing child physical activity is one of the initiatives proposed for combating childhood obesity, and it will be interesting to see how this can be achieved for children from lower-income backgrounds and neighbourhoods. The bottom line is that obesity can cause an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes and cancer, diseases which place an enormous economic burden on our healthcare system. There is scientific evidence to suggest that lower income is connected with obesity. Hopefully this will be addressed in the fight against obesity. It's the sound of And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to connect with our panel of super science geeks, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or just want us to bask in your adoration, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Tilly Berlin, and Jackie Hayes. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more scientific discovery next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
Oh, oh, oh.